Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. He took a bus to meet me in a bar in a Tuscan hill, a sight I'd never seen. I believe in God still, but wouldn't be able to stop me if I feel like running away. Wouldn't be able to stop me if I didn't want to stay. Uh, beginning of the year with Laura Marling. You could do a lot worse. And yes, uh, poor Mr. McPants. He had to go find that song. And there's a live version you can find very easily. This is the album version. And it's really good. All right. Never mind about that. So uh, we're about to do an all-call show. We've already got two calls up on the board. It's uh, called uh, Ask or Tell Me Anything. You can call. You. You. I'm talking to you. There are no, there's no bar you have to clear other than actually being able to dial a phone. 888. 888- 720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. You don't have to talk about the hot topics that are transfixing the nation right now, although you can. Just talk about something eclectic or eccentric or esoteric. And so let's get going with that, and we are going to begin with uh, Tom in Milford. Hi, Tom. You're on the air. And Tom, Tom, Tom. I can't hear you, man. Here, I'm going to put him on hold for a second. See if we can figure that out. Uh, and we'll try somebody else. We will try Anthony in New Haven. Hi, Anthony. You have the floor. Okay, I think we might have a technical problem here. <laughs> so can you guys try to figure out what's going on, cat and pants? Uh, and we will try to figure out. And don't hang up, Anthony and Tom. Uh, we will try to figure out why uh, you're not coming up here. Uh, but meanwhile, while that's happening. Okay, so this is the part. <laughs> <laughs> this is the part where I kill time a little bit while we work on that. So, um, and I will. So, a couple of things. One of them is, you know, New Year's resolutions are kind of dumb, except that if you say that they're dumb, then you're sort of saying that you don't think there's anything where you need to improve, right? And for me, it's kind of the opposite. The, my only reluctance about New Year's resolutions is – when do I stop? You know, there's like so many areas, <laughs> so many areas where I need to raise my game. So, um, so one of the things that I've decided to do is to become more organized. And, um, and, and you know, over the last month or two, we at our house kind of emptied out this guest bedroom based on the idea that we don't expect to ever have guests again. Uh, and then we, <laughs> we uh, turned it into my new office. And it's really nice. 
and um, and it has allowed me to get more organized. Having said that, I came here today without the iPad that I have to use to do the show. Now, fortunately, today, because it's an ask or tell me anything, there's essentially nothing on the iPad. But in terms of like my first day as being a more organized person, eh, this is not so great. Uh, all right, I'm going to try again and see what happens if the calls come up. Oh, I'm being told the callers can't hear the show either. That's not good. All right, let's try it again. Uh, see what happens. Uh, Tom from Milford, how's it going this time? No, I don't think so. All right, so we may have like a we may be a DefCon one. We have may have a, like a major show emergency here. Uh, I would track down Gina Amatruda immediately if he can be found. Uh, so uh, I won't give out the phone numbers for a while, uh, and we'll try to figure all this stuff out. So, um, so a couple of things. Um, I, I one of the things I like about this show when we do it and we can when we can actually get the calls on the air uh, is that um, it's you know people rarely do call up about the kind of the hot take topics of the day. However, I'm going to mention uh, one or two uh, things that are going on right now that are pretty big, and obviously. Um, the story of Damar Hamlin uh, is what we all went to bed uh, to last night. And it's sort of an example of some of the hazards of like looking at your phone before you go to bed. I mean, obviously, this, the, the real hazard is to this poor young man. And I'm assuming everybody knows about this. But uh, he, um, in the middle of a football game last night, Monday Night Football, uh, he was in the process of tackling a receiver. Uh, and it didn't look like a particularly sharp collision by NFL standards, by any other standards it would be. But, and he fell over. Uh, and, the, um, and, and then they spent, I think, roughly eight minutes using CPR there right on the field. And then they took him to a hospital, and we don't really know exactly what's going on right now, and it would be rude to speculate. Although, one thing that I would say about this is that um, almost every cardiologist uh, and trauma specialist who watched this happen um, was guessing it was something called commodio cordis, commodio cordis, which actually means agitation of the heart is literally how you translate it, but it's it's blunt force trauma to the area right above the heart, uh, and, and it actually sort of knocks the heart out of its rhythms, as I understand it. Um, and one reason for optimism, and maybe we're grasping at straws right now, is that Christian Pronger, who was a very, very high draft choice for the Whalers in this very city where I sit, um, experienced exactly the same thing. He was, I think, a slap shot went into his chest, uh, and he fell over on the ice. Um, and after being treated, he came back and enjoyed a very long and celebrated hockey career. So, um, you know, I mean, we, we're kind of hoping for the best here. But it is one of those things where you you kind of reexamine all of your own priorities and you think about why am I watching this sport? I'm a football fan. I watch NFL games. but And I know, I know a lot of reasons why I shouldn't. Um, but I watch them anyway. And I mean, I can come up with reasons why it's okay to do that, but they're all going to sound like rationalizations. Anyway, um, I also want to tell you about the Mr. Garb envelopes, which we may be deploying sooner rather than later. Usually we have a rule where you have to ask uh, for, uh, you have to ask me to open a Mr. Garb envelope. Uh, and I usually have a code word that I give out, which I might do today. Uh, but uh, let me tell you about the nature of these. So Mr. Carp uh, is somebody I went to college with. He's one of my uh, dearest friends from college. So we met like 47 years ago. Uh, and Mr. Karp uh, graduated from Yale University in three years, Phi Beta Kappa and Summa Cum Laude. And he wasn't in the library the whole time either. I happen to know that for a fact. Uh, so I always feel like, you know, 
I don't know. I don't know anybody else who ever did anything like that. Phi Beta Kappa and Summa Cum Laude in three years, and he's went on, gone on to have a very, very successful career as a master of the universe. Uh, and now he's kind of, you know, well, one of the things he does now is he clips things out of publications, physical publications, that he thinks may trigger an interest uh, in his friends, and he puts them in envelopes and he sends them out. So I have three Mr. Carp envelopes here. Uh, if necessary, I could open any one of them. Usually, as I say, I wait for you to ask me. But if it turns out we can never get any of you on the air, uh, then that won't happen. But we have those. So I don't want you to panic any more than I'm panicking right now. All right. I am going to try just a different phone line just to see how we're doing. This would be, if we were lucky, Margaret from Waterbury. Margaret, are you there? No, we're still not doing that. Okay. So uh, some other things to uh, tell you about. Uh, including stuff that's going on this week here on the show. Uh, we Well, first of all, tomorrow I will be appearing at 9 o'clock with AccuFrankie, Frankie Graziano, on where we live in a political roundtable that will also involve Jonathan Wharton and Christine Stewart. You know, and it will have certain echoes uh, of a political roundtable show we used to have on this radio station. Um, and who's – I don't know. I mean, it's almost, almost – been forgotten in the mists of history. Could it possibly be coming back? Uh, anyway, we're going to be talking about the beginning of the legislative session, which starts tomorrow, uh, and and other stuff too. But, you know, things that are like big priorities this year and all that kind of stuff. We're also going to be doing an episode on Thursday about, um, about recaps, uh, like TV movie recaps. Well, I guess TV recaps, episode recaps. I guess that's what it's called. So... <laughs> If I had my iPad with me, I, I would know exactly what it was called. But um, we're going to say it's episode recaps because we're increasingly reliant on those. Um, it's, you know, I don't know if like when Homer was doing the Iliad, you know, as as oral epic poem poetry, he would like do a, maybe a little recap uh, right before, uh, you know, right before he, he did the latest installment, you know. Previously on the Iliad. Uh, but anyway, we're going to do a whole thing about episode recaps. Who does them? What purpose they have? And I'm intrigued by, uh, and, and I think uh, senior producer Lily Tyson is working on this aspect of it now. I'm intrigued by the, have you noticed how difficult it is to, to remember what happened on shows that you watch pretty regularly? Um, I mean, I'm getting older. And so, so life seems increasingly disconnected to me. Um, so, um, but, but I mean, I, you know, I think everybody's having this problem a little bit. It's also just there's a lot of prestige television. There's a lot of things to, to watch, a lot of things that we are watching. Uh, and so you need this, right? You need to <laughs> – I'll tell you one thing. You know, one of the great inventions, obviously – in fact, we should stop saying they put a man on the moon or it's the greatest thing since sliced bread because, you know, I mean, those are old – technological innovations. We should be saying things like they invented a skip intro button or skip ad button, but they invented a skip intro button and why can't they do X, Y, Z? Anyway, um, one thing I never do is skip the recap (laughs) because I'm never completely sure I know what happened previously. Anyway, all of that, all of that. I mean, we probably will talk to a neuroscientist about why people have trouble remembering, you know, something really dire that might have happened on your favorite show last week. So that'll be Thursday, and then Friday we'll be doing the nose. I'm in such great shape right now. Uh, I've already seen everything that we're going to talk about on the nose. That includes a Netflix series called The Recruit, 
which is ter- well, I shouldn't say. I shouldn't say what I think about it. Right, that'll be a spoiler. And then White Noise, which is Noah Baumbach's movie adaptation of the 1985 novel by Don DeLillo, a very important novel in my life. Um, it um, I probably read it three times. I watched the movie last night, and then I went up into our Mayor of Easttown type attic and rifled through boxes until I found my copy of White Nose, White, White Noise for the Nose uh, in a box uh, and took it downstairs and started reading it again. So, but I can't, I shouldn't say what I thought of any of that stuff. So that's all stuff that's kind of happening this week. I should also say unfolding right now, something that we could talk about if it were ever possible to talk to anybody, uh, would be the election for speaker in the House of Representatives, in Washington, D.C., Kevin McCarthy obviously was the putative news speaker, and it's apparently not going well at all. It's going so poorly that some of the more radical and dysfunctional segments of the Republican House caucus have suggested that if they are sufficiently displeased with McCarthy and they can't get what they want, they'll throw it to a plurality. And Hakeem Jeffries, uh, who is scheduled to become the Democratic minority leader will, would become Speaker of the House and that they can live with that. And if you can think about that for a second, I'm not the first person to make this observation, but if you're a chaos Muppet, which is to say if you're Lauren Boebert, Matt Goetz, uh, Jim Jordan to, a particular, to, to some degree, you know who all these, Marjorie Taylor Greene, if you're a chaos Muppet, you might enjoy being in a numerical majority party where the speaker is from the other party, right? Because you could have you could cause even more trouble, or at least you can thrive. That's like a Petri dish for you. So anyway, that's going on right now. Uh, and uh, we're going to take a little break right now. <laughs> I, am going to, I am going to issue a prayer to the radio gods that, uh, that service be restored. But you know, if it doesn't, it won't be the first time I talked for 49 minutes. I've done this before. I know I could do it again. We'll be back. Here but for fortune Placed by fate's mysterious schemes Who'd believe that we're the ones asked To try to rekindle the patriot's dreams Arise Sweet destiny, time runs short. All of your patience has heard their retort. Hear us now, for alone we can see to try to rekindle. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. 
ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is uh, Ask or Tell Me Anything. Uh, it's the kind of show that we do once in a while where we just have phone callers. We don't book guests. There's a slight problem, which is that we cannot currently hear the phone callers, nor, they, nor can they hear me. So um, so we have like a couple of different possible... <laughs> we have a couple of different possible ways that we might get through this, including Kat is offering to come on the air and talk to me about Jer- poor Jeremy Renner. I hope he's okay. But anyway, we, we, we can get to that if we have to. But right now, I think it's sort of, you know, there's always a little chance that we're making radio history here. So <laughs> so I'm going to try to do this by myself for a second. Meanwhile, Jonathan McPants has come up with a really good idea, which is I can see what each caller. We have four call- callers who are still hanging on the board. Uh, I can see on the screen uh, what each caller wants to talk about. Oh, and I think we're getting ready to do a test here. So let's try let's try Margaret just for fun. They've all been on hold for a while, but hi Margaret, you're on the air. Except you're not on. <laughs> you guys were just playing with my emotions in there. They told me to try a call. Uh, all right, so um, so no, Margaret is not there. Let me get her back on hold. But I know what Margaret wants to talk about. I know what everybody wants to talk about. I may not know in detail what they want to talk about, but I know what they want to talk about. So I'm just gonna. You know, I'm just going to have both sides of the conversation. All right. Are you ready? Uh, okay. Uh, our first call here is Tom from Milford. Hey, Colin. Uh, you're a first-time caller. Um, you might not be a first-time caller. but Hey, Colin. Uh, you know, I was reading somewhere where you were saying that— um, He's also a Muppet, by the way. <laughs> I don't think I mentioned that. I was just—I uh, <clears throat> think I heard that you mainly listen to music uh, on a on a service, like, you know— Spotify or Tidal or whatever, and that you make playlists, and that's how you listen to things. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the um, about why you do that, 
And how come you don't listen to albums, man? <laughs> well, thanks, Tom. Uh, it's a great question. Uh, thanks for calling. Uh, and I would say the reason that I do this, uh, it, well, I don't know about the reason I do this, but let me just say, let me just elaborate on this. So, you know, back in the old days, you'd go, you'd save up your money, you'd go, you'd buy, you know, a revolver or something, you know, you bring it home, you listen to the whole album, and you listen to it 20 more times. Uh, and uh, <laughs> all kinds of alarming things are happening on my computer screen right now. So, and, and we've changed, right? Most people have um, one of these services. Uh, and so how does that affect things? Well, it can affect things in any number of ways. I mean, the amazing part of it is, much to the detriment, to the financial detriment of musical artists, you can have almost any album you want at any given moment you want or any cut of any album you want. And so I have fallen into the practice of making playlists. And a lot of times what I'll do is... I'll maybe go through, you know, I, I happen to use a service called Tidal. It's very similar to Spotify and the other ones as well. Uh, and it's T-I-D-A-L. And I'll just, you know, it'll suggest stuff to me. And I'll just go through things. And, you know, I'll listen a little bit. And if I like something, I'll pull it off and put it into one of my playlists. And then I'll be listening to my playlists which means that you have to constantly glance down at your phone to try to figure out what it is you're listening to. This was going on right before I came here. And so, the, I mean, it, it's the, the interesting part of it for me is if you do that, then one of the things that you do notice is what makes you jerk your head up? You know, what makes you go, hey, what, what was that? What was that? Because I have to tell the stuff on the, I put on, play, on the playlist I've only given a cursory listen to. So over time, for example, there's an artist named Aoife O'Donovan, uh, A-O-I-F-E is for some reason how you spell Aoife. Uh, and I just noticed that every time my head would bob up, like, hey, what's that? It, the high percentage of the time, it was Aoife O'Donovan, partly because of the way she sings, also the way she writes uh, the songs are just very kind of exciting and interesting. And in a way... It does help you understand what kind of music really wins over your attention. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of downsides to it, including just never really fully coming to grips with anybody's work or oeuvre. Or, 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 <laughs> I mean, there's some bad, bad things to it. But I feel like I learn a lot about music that way, and I have a little bit more time um, uh, to – I don't have more time. I have more opportunities to decide, decide hey, you know this Brian Eno guy? He's not just some weird guy that Dankosky likes. He's kind of cool on his own basis. Oh, people are coming in here. There's this whole NASA thing now. There's like a pit crew coming in to try to fix stuff. So anyway, I hope that answers uh, Tom's question. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I don't think it's the best way in the world to listen to music, but I think it's kind of where an awful lot of us are right now. And probably there will be a restoration at some point uh, of the album and of the idea that things – deserve a little bit more of our, our full attention. And I mean, I totally get why it's wrong what I do. Uh, and I'm also being told that uh, we may, we may, we may be ready to try something. All right. So we're going to try uh, Anthony on line one. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Colin. Oh, uh, my God. Well, Look, there's, there's a, first of all, like, is there, there's a, like an Apollo Soyuz celebration going on in the control room right now. We just docked. Uh, our space stations. It wasn't easy, or maybe an Apollo 13 <laughs> would be a better comparison. But anyway, they're very happy there in the control room. All right, Anthony, you have the floor. And by the way, to everybody else, you can now call 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. All right, Anthony, the, the floor is yours. 
So when you listen to, or I'm sorry, when you watch a movie uh, at the end, there's a long list of credits, and mm. everybody gets credited, including the caterer. But if you buy a book and you 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 open the the front pages, uh, there are very few credits. So my question is, why does a caterer get a credit in a movie, but a book editor who may have had a significant uh, influence in shaping the book or even commissioning the book, why don't they get a credit? Well, typically, I mean, not with every single book, but typically the the book version of this is often at the back. It's called acknowledgments, typically, and it is. It, it'll, you know, you you've read these, you know what they get. Sometimes it'll be forget about the caterer. It'll be like, yeah, I'd like to thank the guys down at the Good News Garage because they were really helping me out when I was having a problem with the Mazda. I don't think I would have gotten the book done if you hadn't done that. Uh, you know, I mean, they, everybody they thank everybody, or they can thank almost anybody. So. You know, it's not that it doesn't happen, but I think the underlying premise of your question is an interesting one, and it's book editors, what do they do, right? Right. So, you know, and and if they're acknowledged uh, at the end of the book, that's, you know, through the grace of the author, but it's not required. No. uh, You know, like it is in a movie or, or, you know, in a music album, you know, although we don't have physical albums anymore, I imagine there's a list of credits for everyone, including the the re-recording mixers. Uh, but it, it's striking to me that book editors are not that that's not a, a, a sort of custom or practice to cr- credit them uh, at the beginning of the book. Right. So I mean, let me say a couple more things about that, which is and I'm maybe not as up to date as I could be with the publishing industry, um, not having written a book in a while. But um, but I, I have written books. And, you know, I think increasingly there are. There are fewer, I mean, the era of Max Perkins is over. You know, Maxwell Perkins kind of famously uh, is the guy who guided and stuff like, you know, Look Homeward Angel to his destination and stuff. And, and even more recently, my first book, in fact, I was sort of acquired as an author before I'd even produced a book. And the guy who did it was a guy named Herman Golub, who was this legendary um, editor who, I guess I can say this now, I don't know. It's everybody, all the necessary people are dead. Um, I mean, there was a rumor, for example, that he'd essentially written Shogun uh, by James Clavell, that given the shape that it was in, you know, I mean, he really. But I think, you know, with each passing year, the number of editors who really put pencil to paper or whatever the digital equivalent of that is and really reshape prose dwindles a little bit more in favor of acquisition editors. Now, you still have, you still have, you know, just you know, legendary uh, editors. Uh, there's one who is married to one of our regular guests here and who is um, um, who is very importantly Barack Obama's book editor. And he, he'll go wherever she is. You know, I mean, he'll go to if she's changed houses, he's going to follow her. Um, it's like that. And, and I think editors can be really, really important when you have a, um, an author who, you know, Obama is clearly a writer uh, and in fact, his editor, whom I obviously know, has assured me he is a writer and he, he writes and she edits. Uh, but sometimes with, with people who are not maybe first and foremost writers, you really need that editor. Obviously, they're just, you know, they're not in the habit of doing it. Or I'm in the middle of right now of reading Mary Rogers' book, Shy, where the critic Jesse Green clearly has taken uh, an, an, a really amorphous kind of, I hate to say scatterbrained, but not particularly through-line-oriented manuscript and kind of knocked it into shape without necessarily costing the manuscript its playfulness. 
you know, and, and, and Mary's discursive way of jumping from subject to subject and staying out of chronological order and stuff. So there's still a world where that happens. But I think it happens less and less. And I think that's too bad, too. You have the floor. Well, you know, I I I, I hear what you're saying. Um, I I guess really my my question or, or my thoughts were, uh, you know, whether it had anything to do with sort of a marketing uh, uh, idea that the author was the master of this work and didn't really have a lot of help with it. Um, if that played a role in it, you know, I. I I wouldn't say that that never is the case, um, but I, I think most people, once again, if you look at those acknowledgments, things which, as you say, are volitional, but pretty de rigueur at this point too. It's rare; it's very rare that you don't get. I mean, it used to be you might, maybe you got, you know, half three quarters of a page. Now the acknowledgments go on for pages. <laughs> they mention everybody they ever knew, uh, so I think it's more settled and agreed upon that it takes it does take a village to do a book so there's a there's a little bit more acknowledgement of the role that your agent plays the way or your whole agency and everybody who works at your agency and they've all got to be named it's like oscar acceptance speeches now um you know i i don't know how many authors are super sensitive about the idea that an editor did some of the work i i think the other thing is a lot of stuff in movies is ruled not only by convention but sometimes by contract or by union contract, you know, there are rules about who has to get acknowledged and stuff like that. So it, it may also be that, that there's no corresponding set of requirements. Book authors can do whatever they want to do. Although if you're smart and you, ever, you plan to write a second book, <laughs> you acknowledge everybody who really did help you uh, because it's a very tough business and you might as well have everybody on your side that you can possibly get. It's a really interesting question though, Anthony, not one I was expecting today, but that is just fine. All right. We've tried to put her on the air 16 times. I think this 17 is a charm. Here's Margaret in Waterbury. Hi, Margaret. Hi, how are you? Just fine. That's good. Um, my question to you is, or I'm just looking for some, somebody else's insight on this. I like to watch, um, all the movies that are up for possible acknowledgments at the um, Oscars. And um, to name five, uh, Triangle of Sadness, The Menu, The Whale, Babylon, and White Lotus, they're all about excess, very, you know, extreme excess. And um, I don't know, it just dawned on me that that was the case, and I'm wondering why now it's so much... If anybody has any explanation for that. Yeah, I would just like to sort of uh, add one little wrinkle here, um, which is that several of the things that you mentioned are not up for Oscars because they are TV series. Um, but, yeah, well, yeah, I'm sorry, White Lotus, but yeah, that is one. But well, all I, the others I didn't even. Yeah, isn't the menu a TV series? Do I have that wrong? Uh, no, that was just the movies. Okay. No, that was, yeah. Um, yeah. All the others are definitely movies. All right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think. First of all, it is interesting. What you're doing, I think, is really interesting. I mean, mining things for trends and, and wondering what that means. And I think, you know, to take White Lotus as an interesting example, clearly Mike White, the showrunner and the auteur, uh, doesn't really have a whole lot of love in his heart for these people. On the other hand, he also can't stay away from them. And I think that often describes an attitude that you'll see, uh, you know, in, in some of these places, that you'll see 
um, people drawn to things that repulse them. I mean, I'll, I'll give you another example. It does not exactly in excess, but we spent an enormous amount of time in 2022. I, I think excess actually isn't the wrong term with the royal family, right? I mean, the crown, yeah. which is absolutely fascinating. You can't take I can't take my eyes off it. I watch you know the episodes pretty fast every every season, and then the death of the queen herself and the fabulous queue, you know, uh, the people waiting to say goodbye to her, and then Harry and Meghan with their advertisement for themselves. Which, you know, has done very well on Netflix. I wouldn't have expected people to be that interested in these two people, basically. And these are incredibly wealthy and privileged people, you know. And and I think people often tune in thinking, I hate these people. Or, you know, these people are no better than me. I'm going to watch them just to satisfy myself that that's the case. But I I think – and I don't know if this is what you're getting at, Margaret. But I think there's an attraction there as well. I think people – you know, I, you want to fantasize about maybe being in that world uh, or. So you, that, yeah, go ahead. You, yeah, you, so that's what the crowd wants to see. Is that that's what you're saying? That's well, I mean, it, it could also be that auteurs are. I mean, think about succession as another example. These are fabulously rich people who are horrible. <laughs> Almost everybody on the series is really, really horrible. Uh, and so you can watch it. You can kind of hate watch them. But I think it goes yeah. beyond that. It's also there's something really entertaining and thrilling about seeing that world, and we've kind of been doing that forever, right? I mean, we we did it, you know, decades ago with Falcon Crest and Knots Landing in Dallas. You know, we're doing it now yeah, to a certain degree yeah. with Yellowstone and stuff like that, and the Dutton family. You know, who are also in. The, I mean, I don't know. John Dutton would say they're really not rich, but they're sure as hell richer than you and me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You you uh, help me out there. <laughs> well, I could be Thank wrong you. about all that, but I I think I think it's what they sometimes call in psychoanalysis approach avoidance. You know, you want to come near it, and you're also repelled by it. Uh, I I think that might be what's going on here. All right, we're we're favoring anybody who called in at the beginning of the show and went through the long winter uh, of our inability to get calls on the air. Here is Jeff in Hamden. Hi, Jeff. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. You're quite welcome. Um, I've been listening to your show for decades, so it's exciting to be on your show. Um, so I guess the topic I want to talk to you about is music, generally, maybe more specifically, uh, tribute acts. Um, I just so happen to be the founder of the premier tribute to the cars in Connecticut. You and Ray Hardman on social media a couple of times. So now here's my opportunity to reach out to you in person and just invite you to, to see Candio. Um, we're really enthused about uh, the quality of tribute that we're paying to such an iconic music group, uh, and and we think that our excitement translates to, to, to uh, concert goers. Well, I have um, so, I have so many questions for you. Uh, okay, let's begin with. So, how long have you been doing the Cars tribute band? How old is it? Since just before COVID, uh, I, I started it. You know, it's been a revolving door of musicians. There's lots of bands as it happens with lots of bands. Um, but we have a solid core group now. It's fantastic. I can't believe I'm a part of this. Um, and um, All right, so that, that answer didn't really sort of help me pin down what I really want to know, which is, so in 2019, Rico Kasich died. And I was sort of wondering what it would be yeah. like to be, you know, in a Cars tribute band and have a rather unexpected death uh, of the preeminent member of the band. Uh, so were you guys already up and running when that happened? Yeah, so at that time, I was actually coincidentally assuming the vocals for, for both deceased band members. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, and I had been doing this um, at least a year or so before Rick passed away, sadly. Um, and um, uh, it's, it's anyway, I, I shifted and pivoted to my first instrument is drums. So now I'm the drummer of this group very happily. Um, and, and we got a, a, an amazing lead singer uh, from Trumbull, Connecticut, who's been, um, you know, seducing audiences uh, with, with his charm. So um, it's, it's uh, I don't know how, how, to, how to answer your question in terms of like, are you, are you saying it's difficult to step up and... and well, I just would, I would imagine up. that it would change the entire chemistry in the sense of, I mean, not so much the chemistry of the band, uh, I don't know about that, but the chemistry of the performer relating to the template that he's paying tribute to and the relationship with the audience. The audience is, you know, maybe suddenly in a little, if if you love the Cars enough to go see a Cars tribute band, uh, you're probably in a different mood uh, post-October 2019 than you were pre-October 2019, you know? I mean, and you may be even yeah. more impassioned uh, about Rick Ocasek and his work, but you're also kind of sad too. I'm just sort of wondering whether it's just going to cast a pall over things or made it seem like an even more urgent mission or whatever. Yeah, um, you know, this. I kind of, before you took my call, I'm thinking, you know, I kind of make this connection to the work I've done in preservation. Um, throughout my lifetime, I've, I've worked in media preservation, uh, including um, preservation department at Yale Library for, for many years. And um, I've always uh, appreciated the work of uh, Vivian Perlis, uh, Alan Lomax, who all these folks mm-hmm. just like recorded stuff just to preserve it for future research and, and stuff like that. And the work that I'm doing in music now, I feel also especially excited about because I'm really connected with uh, a lot of this great music um, personally. Um, and uh, and I feel like there's a, an active preservation here where, yeah, the urgency has actually stepped up, incidentally, with this group because both of the singers for the band are no longer with us. And this is stuff that really shouldn't be forgotten about. I mean, I find it really not just personally important to me, but I, I just feel like there's now this void. Nobody's going to be doing this again. And I feel like tribute acts in general are, are the, I don't, I, I don't know what other words to use right now, but band-aid, but to patch that hole, that, that void in our culture uh, that people have come to, to develop and appreciate over time. Um, and I, and there, these are, this is, this is the kind of music that there's, there's no, there's no second act. There's, there's no, yeah, no. So Rico Cassick's son is actually currently making music, hmm. um, but but uh, but I you know it's, it's not the it's not the cars obviously, and and I don't know. It's just, like again, it's kind of a service to fill a void with these tribute bands. So I'm going to uh, first of all, by by way of thanking you for calling in and for sitting on hold for a while while we solved our technical difficulties, uh, my gift to you because uh, now I know I knew you're a bit of a preservationist and a music kind of guy. Uh, a piece that I just encountered this morning, although it's from May of last year uh, in the Washingtonian publication, uh, the it, the headline is The Untold Story of the White House's Weirdly Hip Record Collection, subtitled Jimmy Carter's Grandson is Unlocking Its Mysteries. So it turns out that the White House, the White House has, it's all off site because it has to be, but uh, this gigantic vinyl album collection, uh, a lot of it 
uh, I think, given to it by the RIAA, the Recording Industry, uh, Recording, uh, Industry Association of America, uh, curated first by Johnny Mercer, Mercer then by John Hammond. Uh, and one of Jimmy Carter's grandchildren, uh, who's a fully grown person, now discovered this. Uh, and it's like not really talked about or anything. And so he's working on figuring out what's there and helping to catalog it and stuff like that. So uh, I think you will. I predict that you will enjoy this article. And good luck. Uh, and I should think of a very quippy way to say goodbye using a car's title. But I'm too stressed out. So we'll stop there. Thanks to Jeff. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We can really get phone calls now. So feel free to call 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Based on anecdotal evidence, I would say that if you line 10 uh, people, randomly selected people up, two of them will have been in an 80s tribute band. Um, For example, Mr. McVance, our producer today, was in an 80s tribute band. And then, you know, Jeff was in an 80s tribute band. I used to be called up on stage. There was an 80s tribute band band called OPM. uh, And they would call. (laughs) <laughs> Make me go up and say, sing uh, Pump It Up, the Elvis Costello too, which is a hard song to sing because the lyrics have no particular – one thing doesn't really follow from another. You know, I've I come to ex- uh, really appreciate lyrics where, you know, like the way you look tonight or something, you kind of know what's coming next. You can just think about what's probably coming next. But anyway, uh, people to thank. Well, well, now moving to the top of the list is Gina Matruda who figured out what was wrong uh, for 35 minutes and fixed it. And now we're back on the air doing the show that we were supposed to. Cat Pastors, our technical producer, Jonathan McPants, mentioned many times already today, uh, is uh, the producer of the episode, the call screener, and the guy who's so nimble that he manages to get a Cars song to end the segment with Jeff. Uh, it's not like we had any time to plan that. Uh, all right, so we're going to go back to the calls now. Our number, I, well, actually, give it like 888-720-WNPR. Uh, Here's one of the superstars of these shows, and she's actually moved now on to other kinds of things that we do, like our Citizen Observer uh, program. This would be Iman from New Haven. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, how are you, Colin? Good. Um, so my question for you is sort of a hypothetical. Um, imagine that all beings, before they end up on Earth, get to choose how they're embodied like anything from trees, fungus, humans, whatever. Um, I guess it's a three-part question. First, would you recommend to a being to like choose being a human? And two, what would you actually like recommend about our species? Like why choose being a human? And maybe you feel they shouldn't choose a human. Why? Why not? That's what my question is. All right. This is is fascinating. But let me just make sure I get the parameters right, too. So the person, the entity that I'm addressing is some kind of of soul that has never before been incarnated. And and it's like a cheesecake factory. They're looking at the menu. And they're thinking, otter, otter looks good. You know, Um, it's like that. Okay. So what I I recommend, you know, I'm going to, for sake of discussion, I am going to say no, and here's why. Um, 
and it's perhaps a little bit of a product of just having watched the movie White Noise. I think this the there's great things about being a human being. Obviously, you know we can we can each make our own list of them. But the hardest thing is the consciousness of death, right? The notion that's present in us in a way that it is probably not present in, present in other animals. It does seem as though other species have some recognition of death, that they can under, elephants can understand that another elephant is dead, you know, stuff like that. But I don't think they walk around all the time thinking about the fact that they're going to die. And I think that's a very high price to pay for human status. So that's one reason I might tell this hypothetical entity, well, you know, you might have a lot more fun being an otter, actually, and less to worry about. Although, you know, once in a while, something, an osprey comes and eats you or something. But, uh, but that can happen to any species. You know, and then I, I think the other thing that we have to think about here in the Anthropocene age is that, you know, I would want this entity to know that the the rest of the earth, to the extent that it could express preferences, would probably prefer this particular species go away before it wrecks yeah. everything. You know, I mean, you know, it's not as though we're like this exalted presence on earth anymore. It's clear we're the biggest problem the planet has right now. Uh, and we are causing a lot of problems for an awful lot of other life forms. So, you know, the, you know if you really want to, I mean, you know, you could, I suppose— you know, insist on being born into the body of someone who has the potential to become a climate activist and make things better, you know. But I don't know. I don't think it's a layup anyway that you want to be a human. I don't know. What do you think? I I sort of agree with you. I think that, yeah, humans have the potential, obviously, to create art and make music and plan amazing things. But all of that sort of strategic thinking leads us to worry a lot. And I think that's what you're talking about with like worrying about death. <laughs> um, we do spend uh, not even death, just like everything, like humans worry about everything and it causes us a lot of unhappiness. So that is something like I see my dog and I asked her the same question on a walk yesterday. Like what would she recommend to this being in terms of being a dog? <laughs> and yeah, she, she, said many things about smelling things and like being present and being in the moment. I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, humans don't have to work really hard to get back to that, um, which is unfortunate. Well, you know, I think we all ought to make a little bit of an effort here to sniff the ground, you know, a couple of times a day. I'm out with my dog a lot. He does all the ground sniffing. Uh, I'm doing other stuff. I'm worrying. I'm walking around worrying. I'm walking around worrying going, what if I get on the air and the phones don't work? Oh, my God, what would I do? Uh, so, all right, we only have time for just a few more calls, and they all look very interesting. All right, so let's start. Oh, no, she's not there right now. Uh, oh, now she is. Okay, here's Jackie in Lebanon. Hi, Jackie, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. It's nice to hear your voice. Oh, but obviously, I hear your voice a lot, but it's such a, such a lot of energy. I just wanted to um, mention... Uh, a few things. Um, life, as as it was spoken about in the last with the last individual, is a learning school, and it serves the purpose rather well, because having lived thousands upon thousands of life, you can come up with a very um, wise and loving and all things that are really beautiful expressions. And that comes from Earth School, at least this one. 
I just wanted to mention a couple of things like uh, the question that's asked, you know, we're trying to contact, see if there's anyone else except us, and on and on and on they go. And uh, I, I don't know if they noticed that in in London, the, the fields were turning into geodesic and um, it, it, all kinds of Like crop, cir- crop circles and stuff like that, right? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes. I mean, if that's not communication, what in heaven's name is? You know, I think I this is a. It is. It's a very, very complicated uh, situation, and, and I would love to talk to you at greater length. But we're literally almost out of time. Although, I haven't mentioned this before on the air, and I'm a little reluctant to mention it right now because I think it might cause some trouble. But so, Lily Tyson, who's the senior producer of the show, you know, her position is that we, you know, she's very concerned about uh, extraterrestrial life. She doesn't think we should contact them. She's sort of in the Stephen Hawking camp. So she says you know, that it's risky, we shouldn't be sending stuff out there, all this kind of stuff. I'm starting to wonder if this is kind of, you know, um, a little bit of a double blind. I'm wondering whether this is a Le Carre novel, except that it's about an extraterrestrial who, in order to escape detection, says all the time how worried— like, if you were an extraterrestrial living among terrestrial people— wouldn't one of your possible strategies be to claim that you are worried about extraterrestrials? Do you see what I'm saying? I'm feeling like maybe I'm being played here a little bit. She obviously has some powers that are not ordinary for human beings. I saw her put her hand down on a live hot burner and blue smoke poured out of it. She didn't appear to be hurt at all. Um, I'm starting to wonder with this whole, oh, we should so be so worried about E.T. stuff from Lily Tyson, is in fact a way of concealing her true identity. And we are going to have to stop there, but thanks to everybody. I'm so sorry, by the way, to Stephen, David, Levi, Michael. I would have loved to talk to all of you. You all had interesting topics. And it just it just worked out a certain way today. has been disconnected.